Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Vet Gurus. It's Brendan here with Mark. It is Friday... The 7th of September, Mark. It is spring in Australia, although spring has not sprung down here in Melbourne yet, Mark. It's still very cold. I don't know about up at Newcastle. You, you get you get it pretty chilly up your way, don't you? It's chillier inland. Here at the coast, it's not too bad. Pretty comfortable at the moment, though I've still got the fire going, Brendan. Ah, excellent. Well... Speaking of fires, um, I've got nothing that I can segue to with that, so I'm going to talk about something completely different. Um, I was just looking at our statistics, Mark, for our podcast, and thank you for all our our listeners and our subscribers. And I didn't tell you about this, Mark, before in the little off-air session we have before we start recording. We now have listeners in 56 countries, Mark. 56! 56 countries. My goodness. And... And we're, we're approaching 12,000 downloads, if I understand correctly, Brendan. And that, yeah, and that was just last week. I don't know what next week is going to be like, Mark. It's going to be big. It is going to be big. Um, and that, 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 that stat you saw about the downloads and that is not all of our downloads. That's just the one recorded through that blueberry one that I send you. So it's actually a fair bit more than that. Um, yeah, so hello to – I want to say hello to a couple of our um, places where we have a reasonable um, little following mark, and that is the Korea Republic. Believe it or not, we have a, a, re- a reasonable number of people listening there. Hello to you all in Korea. And also Aberdeen City in Scotland, Mark. We have a little clique of people in Aberdeen who listen to us. So I I won't try and do a um, a fake um, Scottish accent, Mark. It'll just um, I'll just butcher it terribly. But um, yeah, hello to everybody in Aberdeen, and um, we would love to have a few more patrons as well. And that is going to Patreon Patreon.com Vet Gurus, or just go to our website VetGurus.com and. You can, for a very nominal amount, Mark, from $1 upwards, you can help support us. And all the money, all the money goes towards helping pay our fees to get on a plane to Aberdeen City and say <laughs> hello to our, our followers. But you can become a bug. We've, we've labelled it different different levels, didn't we, Mark? So you can become a bug, which is the smallest um, smallest donation, $1 a month, I think it is, to a rabbit and a kidna and uh, I think one day I keep hoping that one day we will get a guru supporter um, and that's our highest donation level, Mark, a guru, and they will become an, an official, unofficial guru um, for the vet gurus. So so there you go. So, um, yeah, I think you wanted to talk about what you've been doing at home, didn't you, Mark, before we start the news stories? I have had a day in the garden, Brendan, and as you mentioned, spring has sprung. There's green shoots on everything. Um, and um, I do have a couple of, like, hobby plants. I've mentioned, you know, the massive tome on uh, grass trees that I've been preparing for the last 17 years. So I had to pot a few of those seedlings up just – and I got photos of them, you know, for the book. Um, but um, my, my day-to-day was uh, um, uh, excited a little bit by the fact that um, I've planted some um, some spore – some uh, fern spore um, from my, um, uh, you know, the staghorns, the Platycerium superbum, and uh, and I've actually had them go through their life cycle, and now I have a whole bunch of um, of little ones to uh, to um, to uh, what do they do? They call it um, shield up to to place on various surfaces so they can grow into those uh, gigantic ferns that dangle off the side of the building or whatever and um yeah so i've got a vertical garden is that what you're going to have at home are you mark the wall you're exactly right brendan Uh, epiphytic ferns you will need to send me some photos of that and maybe we should we can post them on our our facebook um, site and potentially on our little little twitter post as well ah good well i've uh, i've been 
ruminating, Mark. I have <laughs> been ruminating about my little country um, trip that I did over the last few months, and I did my little road show where I went to a couple of well, actually three different um, country towns here in Victoria to um, have a little chat about small mammal medicine, and I met some fantastic vets and had a had a very a lot of good belly belly ache laughs, Mark. We had a good chat and a good laugh with a lot of people, but uh, I do want to. Uh, last week was last week was the last one, and I was feeling a bit sad about that. And that was at, at Lee and Gather. So hello to all the vets in South Gippsland here in Victoria that turned up on the night. Um, all, all two of you, thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, no, there's about twenty five, so that was good. Um, and I did want to chat about, and it just reminded me once I, once I was ruminating on it all about um, about one of my visits and and one of the. Um, one of the motels. I was put up in a motel um, for one of these um, one of these road trips. I'm not going to say where, Mark, because it's quite an interesting story. Well, I think it is anyway. Um, and um, the AVA, the Australian Veterinary Association, put me up in this motel, and um, they did mention that they were cutting back on costs um, for for accommodation. And I'll tell you what, they weren't wrong, Mark. They were not wrong. Um, well, that's what so, they've got to do, Brendan, when they <laughs> spend so much money on the speaker. They've got to save some money somewhere. <laughs> I, I wish. <laughs> I wish they spent money on the speaker. And um, Well, I must admit, the, the, the couple that ran this, this motel were quite nice, um, Norman and his mother. Um, they were <laughs> lovely, although I, I never did see Norman and his mother in the same room at the same time, I must admit. But, um, yeah, they were, they were lovely, the couple that were in this motel. But it really took me back to to when I used to travel with um, mum and dad and the, and the five kids um, on our road trips and we – we did camping a lot, and as a treat, this was back in the nineteen seventies, Mark. Um, we used to occasionally stop at a motel, and um, they weren't the most glamorous motels in the world. And I think this was probably one of the motels that we stayed at because I don't think anything had changed from the nineteen seventies or nineteen sixties in this particular motel. And and it just reminded me of a, you know, a, a cinder brick sort of um, huge toilet block type um, set up and I'm very, very harsh and I think the alarm bell started ringing when I turned up at the motel and um, there um, there was no other cars in the whole motel when I turned up there. But uh, yeah, Norman was quite good and then when we checked in there and um, that all went well and, and I did become a little bit excited, Mark, because they did say they booked me in for bed and breakfast. So um, the the um, the mother there, she handed me the little form to fill out, and um, I ticked all the little boxes there for the toast and the, and the um, butter and um, some spinach and uh, eggs, and I, I did the full on sort of. She ended up sort of doing a full on vegetarian type breakfast and uh, mushrooms, etc. And I ticked them all for the hot breakfast, and and I thought, gee, I'm going to go the whole hog, and I ticked a little the box for some. Um, um, for the nice coffee and also a, a drink of orange juice as well, and um, handed it back to her and I and I quizzed her and said, "Is this covered in the in the costs that's been um, already on the tab from the AVA?" And she said, "Yeah, it certainly is." And um, I thought, "Good, I'm I'm set for tomorrow morning because I, I, I it was a fair trip this this country one, and I didn't want to um, drive back home after speaking um, all night because." Mentally, you're often a bit tired from speaking for two or three hours. So, um, yeah, at the end of the check-in, she said, "Okay, your your dinner, um, your breakfast will be delivered to your to your room tonight." <laughs> and I thought, uh, "What? Um, I beg your pardon? Um, your dinner will be delivered tonight, um, and um, the instructions will be with the tray." <laughs> so, I thought this is quite interesting. So I checked into my room after that, Mark, um, and I was a little bit perplexed and um, opened the door to the room, which um, was slightly ajar as I got there and um, went into my room and it absolutely um, smelt of 50 years of cigarette smoke, even though it was no smoke in hotel. I think um, after having 50 years of people staying in that particular hotel, um, you could 
could not get the smell of cigarette smoke out of it. So it was um, it was just absolutely reeking of cigarettes. And as you know, I'm not a smoker, neither are you. And um, it was not a not a pleasant experience there. And um, later that evening, just before I headed out for my my presentation, my breakfast tray was delivered. Mark, um, it, there it was in all in all its glory. It was a little. Um, um, half frozen um, pack of um, um, well food, I think, <laughs> with the instructions to um, put it in the microwave for one minute on high. Um, take it out, take the top off the lid, put it in the microwave for another minute on high, and enjoy. Um, so that was my that was my hot breakfast, and and I I did try my best the next morning, and I did. Um, I did heat it up and um, put it back in and heat it up again and and took it out, but I, I must admit I couldn't identify most of the most of the food that was on it. So um, I um, had my toast um, with a bit of Vegemite and I stopped off at a lovely little cafe on the way back home to have some breakfast there. So that was my that was my interesting breakfast order, but. Um, what really topped it off was the um, shower in this um, shower in this hotel. There was a big sign in the room um, on the on the little table in the room saying our hotel runs on low pressure water system. <laughs> so, and it had these detailed instructions about how to operate the shower, saying that ideally you turn on the hot water all the way. Um, let it heat up and then turn the cold water on um, very slowly to your desired temperature. And uh, I'll tell you what, I would have um, I would have been got more wet running around in the in the little courtyard and throw a bit of water in the air um, because it was very low pressure water. There, Mark. <laughs> so it was um, it was an interesting hotel. Yeah, the, the the people I did feel a bit sorry for for Norman and his mother because they, they were a nice couple and they did. Um, they they looked like they um they'd retired um and and purchased this um this um quaint little hotel um it was um but nothing much had changed in you know at least fifty years or so so but yes yeah, so yeah I I think they have cut back on on costs for accommodating their speakers but um it, it may I think it may backfire Mark so that was one of my experiences that um I was reminiscing about and um but um, the actual Trips to the three, um, excuse me, to the three um, three um, country towns were was very good and um, met some um, amazing vets. And um, one of them reminded me of the main topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, had a little conversation during one of the break periods, Mark. So there you go. So that's my little chit chat for the week, Mark, um, about the hotel I stayed at. And as I said, I'm not going to name the particular. Oh, actually, it's a motel, not a hotel. I'm surprised you got any sleep at all. And um, and did the did the shower have one of those um you know the 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 uh, the, the curtain um you know that uh... <laughs> no the oh, I have to tell you about another hotel um a work hotel trip at some stage but that one's a bit more sort of X-rated oh um, with what was happening in this particular hotel. I'll tell you that off here one day, Mark. Um, yeah, no, it had it had a, it had a, a, a door um, in, into the little um, shower cubicle there. Um, um, the thing goes, I always worry about with hotels and motels, Mark, I don't know whether you're the same, is the, the throw they always have on the bed. You know how they never wash those throws? I always I always tentatively, um, you know, pick them up um, gingerly and um, throw them down onto the floor and try not to touch them because I don't know, they probably wash them once every few years. And You must stay in different hotels to me. The things that go on in some of these hotels, Mark. I, I don't. I want to. No, I don't. I don't. I don't have enough money to stay in the and oh, fancy pants hotels and motels that you stay at. The six star ones that you always stay at, Mark, and um, the penthouse suites. No, that's not doesn't everyone nice. stay in those? Brent? I thought everyone stayed <laughs> yeah. in those. No, we we live in different worlds, Mark. We live in different worlds. Okay, let's get on to some news before we um, bore our listeners, Mark. I think you wanted to talk about a um, a little town in New Zealand. I don't know whether I'm going to pronounce it correctly, Brendan. Oma Ui, Oma Ui, a seaside community steeped in historical and natural landmarks, like most bloody seaside communities in New Zealand. Um, it's a wonderful place and uh, they sent out a fairly open welcome to everyone except 
if you are a feline. Um, Omaui may well become the first town in the world to ban domestic cats entirely. Under its newly unveiled pest management plan, um, the, uh, the authorities are calling for all house cats to be neutered, microchipped and registered. And when those cats expire, they will not be able to be replaced. Um, I think, geez, there will be a, a very large number of um, uh, divorced women over a certain age who will have to move out of Omaui, I would be suggesting. The officials say they have nothing against cats personally. It's just the whole decimating local wildlife thing, they say. Um, cats are getting into the native bush. They're preying on native birds and they're taking insects. They're taking all the, the uh, you know, the, the wildlife, the indigenous wildlife. Um, and the cats are making a huge um, difference. They're really making a horrible dent in the wildlife across New Zealand. Um, and so uh, taking them out of the, the equation um, hopefully will be a reason for the birds to return to the bush near Omaui. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I'd, I'd, I, um, I'd, I'll be very interested to see how this transpires because people tend to get very, very well, zealous about uh, their right to own a cat um, and I just wonder, you know, whether there'll be advocacy groups who uh, challenge such a ban. Um, I don't, geez, I don't know. I don't know whether they'll be able to pull it off, Brendan. Yes, I'm, I'm surprised that they haven't thought about just just making sure they are confined indoors, or that or they have those cat runs. And I know there's a lot of an increasing number of councils here in Melbourne that. Um, where cats are certainly banned from being out um, at night and, and potentially 24 hours a day and they encourage people strongly to 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 have those little cat runs, those wire cat runs where the cats can go through the little cat flap and um, be outside and yet be inside, uh, still confined. We've um, got those. We've got um, a cat, uh, well, we call it a cat, cat max, max, aren't they? Yeah, and it um, runs the length of the side of the house. Um, the cats have a little, um, like you said, a little flappy door that um, is at the end of the laundry. They um, they can uh, just jump through. There's a number of um, perches and plants and uh, outdoor litter trays um, set outside, and um, so they can go out. They get their vitamin D. Um, uh, but they uh, do not get to interact with uh, other cats or wildlife or vehicles of any sort, um, and uh, and they do they use it quite extensively, and um, they're particularly good at um, at uh, you know enjoying the sunshine as it uh, for the period of time that it gets onto it. Um, but um, but yeah, I think I'm surprised like you that uh, that that's not made. A bit of a mandatory thing. I think that down where you are, there are councils who um, pick cats up at night and uh, if they're out. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm not surprised that uh, that's not the tactic that's been. It seems to be much more forceful, doesn't it, in New Zealand? Yes, although when you look at the size of this um, this small village, it is a small village and it consists of only 35 people in the village and, and apparently seven or eight much-love cats. But, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what to say about that story. I think they should just, um, should just um, concentrate on getting those little cat flaps and that. So your cats enjoy um, heading out to that little um, area because I know some people that we've suggested it to with clients, the the cats just seem really wary and it's hard to sort of encourage them to get out into that little run. Oh, they love it. They have no trouble getting out into it and uh, um, the, uh, the, the flat they've negotiated, um, uh, you know, pretty quickly and uh, – and uh, they, they, they have no trouble. They enjoy it immensely. I recommend it highly. And it sort of takes a lot of the, you know, peace of mind. Uh, we, we, uh, we live on a fairly busy road, and if the cats were to get out and be running around um, anywhere near the traffic, we, I'd be beside myself with worry, whereas, you know, if we know they're inside or in the, 
cat run, um, geez, it just saves us a lot of worry. And um, like I said, they don't. We've got a few, a couple of houses that nearby who do have toms and whatnot, and um, and it's just you know nice not to be dealing with cat fights and um, yes, and the the territory that you know that's the other thing that. Um, because their territory is well defined and exclusive from other cats, so we don't have many problems with um, inappropriate urination and those sort of things. So there's multiple reasons to have these outdoor enclosures, I reckon, Brendan. Well, I think you should be contacting them and suggesting that they um, lock up these seven or eight cats in in those um, outside little runs and problem is solved, Mark. And by the sound of it, they're waiting for those um, felines to die and then you won't be allowed to have any other any other cats after that. My um, first story is um, about death as well, Mark, um, to a certain extent. It, well, it is to a big extent and it's the world's biggest king penguin population has plummeted by 90%, Mark. And um, speaking of um, places and pronunciation, I am not going to try to um, pronounce this place. Um, I'm just going to call it by its other other name, which is Pig Island. Pig Island, Mark, which is in the subantarctic area, um, and it still has the world's biggest king penguin population. But back in 1982... There were around about half a million breeding pairs, Mark, of these um, particular penguin, of this particular species, making it the largest such colony in the world. And after a flyover recently, they estimated that the population has plummeted by 90%. Um, they're not quite sure what's happening or why, but the obvious um, the obvious thoughts there are that um, looking at the satellite images, etc., that they suggest climate change, disease, um, competition for resources, and the 1997 El Nino effect may be all reasons for the decline um, that might eventually push them onto the endangered species list, Mark. Um, but um, that's an amazing and um, a dramatic decrease there from half a million to around about 60,000 birds. And that um, that little archipelago, that little island there, is, um, it has been identified as an imp- IBA, Mark, you know what that is, an important bird area by BirdLife International as a, as a really important breeding site for seabirds and notably the large penguins as well. So, yeah, so there we go. So there's a, there's a bit of a downer for the second, um, little news story, Mark. I've got a little addendum to that downer too, Brendan. Um, that, uh, that that seems to be a little bit of a pattern. There was recently a report of um, one of the uh, colonies in Antarctica of the Adelaide penguins, um, which has had a catastrophic breeding event this last last season, where the forty thousand birds produced two chicks um, in a whole season. Um, they literally will not uh, have enough birds to replace themselves at this rate. Um, and they do uh, every um, – they also had a, a, an event in 2013 where they didn't produce any chicks, uh, but these events, uh, you know, they depend on the number of fish in the ocean, how successful they are. The chicks starve. Um, yes. And, um, but uh, it would appear that these events, once rare – um, you know, once every 30 or 40 years they'd have a failed breeding season. Now we're starting to have them once every five or six years and I don't think that's a good long-term outcome. Our, peng- our penguins all over the world might be in trouble, Brendan. Yes, and that, well, they are planning an expedition to the island in next year, 2019, so um, we will wait to see if... Um, that estimate is correct, and and perhaps they can give us some more details about why, why the sudden decline, or whether it's what we think as far as climate change, etc. Um, I think the next news story is a is a is a is a upbeat one, Mark. Do you think so? Do you think so? Do you think so? I don't know. Really got my goat, um, <laughs> because um, it's a um, it's a one of our um, favourite Mother Nature Network. Um, Stories. It's uh, um, titled "How to Hang a Birdhouse Without Harming a Tree." Now, it is definitely an American-focused, Americo-centric story. Um, uh, but the story that it tells is uh, 
is one that I like to I would like to be able to transfer here to Australia and um, and it is the case that uh, um, you know there are we're talking about the penguins dying out but many of our native birds don't have locations where they uh, can breed and particularly hollows um, they're uh, you know every time a tree gets to a certain age and has a couple of branches drop off which uh, provide the opportunity for a hollow to develop um, someone chops it down because that tree might fall over and land on a house or whatever um, and so there are far fewer particularly in our peri-urban areas there's far fewer um, nesting sites. I think even in your backyard, there's talk of chopping down some of the gum trees, Brendan. Um, in my backyard, <laughs> yeah, that- I did that a few years ago, actually. But there's no there's no trees left now. Um, actually, no, there is a few. <laughs> but, but I think that it's good to chop them down. You don't want any trees falling on your house. But it's a good thing to make an effort to um, replace the um, the hollows in some form or another. You know, a nest box. Uh, a, uh, um, some there's bats and birds and native bees that all can live in these um, these uh, um, artificial homes. Um, but I think it's a really important thing not to drill holes into the tree to suspend the the hollow log or the nest box on. Um, I think it's a good thing to uh, either you know that. Um, Drilling a hole or hammering a nail into the tree actually provides an avenue by which funguses and bacteria can enter the living tissue, um, the the, uh, um, the uh, cambium, the the growth tissue underneath the living tissue, and introduce those pathogens and start uh, damaging the tree and even end up in killing it. So, um, penetrating the tree with a, a screw or a nail, I think, is out, and we need to have in our mind that we're going to, um, you know, hang up these, uh, whether you call them bird boxes or bird houses, um, some kind of uh, um, um, uh, strap or uh, um, fabric fastener or glue even or um, uh, um, hosing, a rubber hosing around wires with bungee cords or a whole bunch of other options that uh, maybe slightly less you know, damaging to the tree. Um, in America, of course, they talk about um, sticking these, um, uh, you know, bird houses up on metal poles or, um, and it's always funny when the squirrels try to climb up on them and, and get into them um, and they can't quite up, get up the metal poles. But um, certainly uh, there's just not enough trees and sometimes you do have to use a pole. And uh, around here in Newcastle, there are a number of a number of osprey nests that are put in specific metal poles. But I think for most houses, um, just suspending something off the side of the building, or um, or more importantly, getting it into a tree that maybe doesn't have its own hollows, but uh, attaching it or suspending it in such a way that it doesn't damage the tree in the long term is going to be a good thing, Brendan. Yes, well, if I had any trees left in the backyard, I'd probably take your advice there, Mark. I don't want to upset my little hydroponic, wacky, tobacky um, colony um, um, growth out there that um, that is going quite well. Yes, um, do you have any any do you have any bird nests outside or any possum boxes? Interestingly enough, just in the building next to the hospital. So the Sugarloaf Animal Hospital is on a block. Next to the block is a council-owned building, which um, which is a three-storey building. And on the top floor, there's been a, a long history of our local galahs landing and chewing a hole and nesting in the building. And the council set up some bloody beautiful, just a- outstanding um, nest boxes, three of them along the side of the building, um, and wouldn't you know it, the galahs completely ignore them and still chew holes in the building and nest inside. Um, but that's okay. The nest boxes are now used by the eastern rosellas and, and uh, oh, you know, those minor birds. There's a couple of those in there as well. So I do pay a lot of attention to what uses the nest boxes near work, um, and we do have a couple of them at home as well. Good. Well done, Mark. Well done. My last year... 
my last news story, I was, I was having a bit of a chuckle there. I was going to try and attempt a, a, a poor joke, so I'll leave that alone. Um, it's, it's a topic that I've spoken to about a couple of times, and that's um, um, wildlife in urban areas, Mark, and um, a little article that was initially published in The Guardian about Mumbai's leopards, um, that they, um, they have certainly killed humans, but could they also be saving lives? And it, um, a little bit of background is that in the national park uh, near Mumbai, they expect that there's around about 40, 41 leopards there, Mark, um, roaming the 40 square area of the park. And um, this article was actually um, from, it was a full text um, publication that was uh, done in the Ecological Society of America journal, I think. Um, and uh, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this particular article because um, if I read from the abstract rather than the article in the, in the journal there, um, um, it, it says um, populations of large carnivores have often suppressed in human-dominated landscapes because they can kill or injure people and domestic animals. However, carnivores can also provide beneficial services to human societies, even in urban environments. We examine the services provided by leopards. I like that, services provided by leopards. Um, to the residents of Mumbai, India, one of the world's largest cities, we suggest that by preying on stray dogs, leopards reduce the number of people being bitten by dogs, the risk of rabies transmission and the costs associated with dog sterilisation and management. That's basically the, the crux of this particular article, um, saying that... Um, that maybe they're being, um, they're a good thing, these leopards in the park, um, apart from the fact that they have um, killed a fair few, um, a reasonable number of humans, um, but they're reducing the stray dog population, Mark. Um, I, I find it quite odd logic, this particular um, this particular article. I don't know whether you've had a little look at it, Mark, but um, I don't really want to say much more about it, but I, I find it quite Illogical, um, the particular paper. I, yeah. I, well, no, no, I, I completely understand your ambivalence. I, um, you know, it's uh, it almost um, reaches into anti-vaccination logic. That um, you know, I understand the the uh, population dynamics that the presence of large predators will suppress the presence of maybe second-order predators. Um, I note here in the in the article that. Um, that in that part of the world, the dogs may actually constitute as many as um, as much as forty percent of the uh, urban leopards' uh, um, dietary intake. So they obviously play a role on in controlling the numbers to a certain extent, but probably more importantly, influencing their behaviour, maybe making them more secretive and I don't know, um, not coming into contact with people. But um, one hundred and forty people a year um is that let me just make sure i've got that number right 140 people a year are killed by the leopards um seems to no 25 140 25 cases peaked in with um 25 people um, killed by the leopards in 2002 I, i'm like you i think maybe they should just uh sterilize the dogs i think that would be the uh, tactic i would take Yes, yes. I, I, I don't get what they're hinting at there. Do we do we do we breed up um, or, or, or encourage more leopards here so we can control the um, the um, the um, wild dog population? Yeah. I mean the the other the other item we should jump onto our main main story. Mark, people probably falling asleep. But the other the other thing it reminds me of is the, the, the there was a um, a bit of a trend for biological control of reptile mites um, where people would um, place um, supposed parasites that would parasitise the mites um, into their reptile enclosure. Um, do you remember that, you Mark, some I, several you years ago? You could send away and get a little box of parasitic mites and, and uh, um, um, I think they were sold. They, it was a sideline from a company that sold them for... Uh, control of plant mites so uh, apparently in that industry it's quite useful to biologically control some of the damaging plant mites and they thought it would be a good idea to um, stick them in with the reptiles as well Brandon. 
Yes, so we ended up with um, clients that would have a whole um, reptile room um, covered not only with reptile mites but also these parasitic mites that went crazy as well. So it didn't didn't work very well. But they could always they could, Enough they could always release the uh, cane toad in the reptile room to, to eat the mites. <laughs> yes, that's right. And then the, <laughs> and then the snakes can eat the cane toads. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the circle is complete, Mark. The circle is complete. Okay, enough reptiles. Let's get on to our main topic, which is probably what um, people have fast-forwarded to already, <laughs> and that is nutrition in rabbits. And we wanted to have a little bit of a yak, a yarn, a, a chat about uh, what we recommend as a a good diet for pet rabbits, Mark. So do you want to kick it off and talk about um, what do you say to clients? What's your summary that you give to your clients when you have a, a new rabbit owner comes into your practice and they say, Mark, what should I feed my little buddy? Well, well it's a, this will probably be a pretty short part of the discussion, Brenda, because I um, I tend to suggest to people that they feed them grass, that um that uh, a significant portion of their diet um, needs to be um, grass, that all the wild rabbits that we see around that are in excellent health and excellent, um, um, you know, outstanding fitness, a wonderful body condition, um, those rabbits eat grass. Um, and I think um, that uh, you certainly uh, need to ensure but I'm just trying to think. I, I would normally say to people that I want them to have about seventy uh, percent of the rabbit's diet by weight um, to be uh, grass. Is that seventy percent? Is that the number that you use, Brendan? Well, I, I just say to them, look, just feed ad lib, ad lib um, grass or, or hay, and we'll talk about the differences and why you'd recommend hay and grass. Well, I'm going to quiz you, Mark. Why? Why would you say grass or? or or hay or vice well, versa. Why do why do some rabbit yeah, why do some rabbit vets say just feed hay and veggies? And that's the title of this this podcast this week is Hay and Veggies. Why worldwide do people say hay and veggie and not grass and veggies or weeds and, and veggies? And um, you've hit the ball out of the park, Brendan, because um, I use the term grass as the you know as the classification of the plant that we want to feed them i don't care whether it's still growing in the ground or whether it's hay um the the hay is only a cut stored form of grass as far as i'm concerned um except you know obviously hay that's not grass so things like loosen hay um which i expressly ask people not to use um, but what I'm after is for them to choose grass. And that, that may be, you know, we have some clients who set up little trays um, and uh, get their sharp shovel and cut a little clod out of the lawn, lob it into a kitty litter-sized tray and, um, and let the rabbits eat literally growing grass. Um, uh, and, when, you know, um, obviously the rabbits that are house rabbits like my house cats we were talking about earlier are not going to get out uh, significantly, so some of those things have to be brought in. And hay, of course, has the advantage that it's much less labour-intense than trying to organise growing grass. Um, so it's easier to store. It's uh, going to take, because it's dry, it's going to take much longer to spoil. Um, so, uh, so I don't think there's a conflict between what people are saying when they talk about hay and uh, veggies, I'm just specifically saying that the whether it's hay or fresh grass, they need to eat grass, Brendan. Yes, and I think we need to point that out too, sometimes to vets, but also to, to the owners as well, um, in, in that they get in their heads that, hey, we have to feed just hay, we have to feed hay, and if they have access to fresh grass um, and or weeds, and I, I strongly encourage my clients to to um, take all sorts of plant material that's outside, anything that's um, grown upwards from the ground basically is what I generally recommend, Mark, um, especially the weeds and milk oh, thistle yes. here in, in Australia, those sorts of things, those really fibrousy, fibrousy um, plants um, to to offer them to, to their 
to their bunny and um, some clients will then look at me and say, gee, I didn't realise I could feed um, fresh fresh grass or hay to my or, – or, or, or um, um, weeds to my – my rabbit, and I think it's convenience. You've nailed it, um, Mark. There, the, the the dry, the actual hay that you can buy in a bale of hay is what I usually recommend to clients to go out and buy. Buy a bale of hay from a feed store that that sells to horse owners, for instance. Um, that um, a high turnover um, of hay, and just buy some nice, sweet smelling grass hay is what I recommend with them. With them, um, you have to be a little bit cautious, I think, with buying some of the hays that. Not all of them, but some of the hays that are sold in pet shops and uh, supermarkets and and those types of places, because sometimes those those hays are, are packaged a long time ago, Mark, and um, they may be sitting on the shelf for for a long period of time and 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 may deteriorate in in quality, and you end up basically purchasing straw, which rabbits will eat straw, but there's not much nutrition in straw um, as far as, um, yeah, there's a bit of fibre, that, but that's about it. So um, the only other comment I usually say to clients straight away when I'm, when I'm mentioning the, the possibility of their little bunnies going out in the veggie patch or eating the grass or the weeds in the backyard is to ideally, and it's a bit hard if you've just letting them loose in the veggie patch, ideally you wash those, um, those, um, that grass or that, um, that uh, plant material that you've um, cut fresh because um, I'd be interested in your thoughts, Mark. But we, we, we—I wouldn't say common, but um, it's not rare for us to see rabbits that have um, tapeworm cysts um, from from eating um, eating plant material that's been contaminated. Um, um, so we strongly recommend you wash, or the clients wash the um, the fresh um, plant material that they're fed into their to their rabbits. Do you see much? We do see cysts in them. Um, we see tapeworm cysts. And, uh, and the other thing about washing it, I think, is that um, it just makes that fresh stuff a little bit more palatable, just like someone wandering along the uh, um, supermarket aisle with their little water sprayer to uh, freshen up the, um, the, uh, the garden fresh veggies. Um, the rabbits do seem to be more interested in the veggies if there's just, you know, they're recently rinsed and shaken off and there's a couple of droplets of water there. Um, there's an, yeah. um, talking about uh, grass, though, Brendan, um, it, it raises uh, um, a good, well, one of my favourite words um, is phytosilicates because I often talk to clients about they go and get um, loosened hay and the rabbits love loosen hay, don't they, Brendan? They love it because it's very sweet. Um, but it's not very abrasive. Um, the grass hays, the um, Timothy hay or orchard hay, um, uh, any of those good quality uh, grass hays, they are rich in phytosilicates, which are little, you know, Bits of silica grass incorporates into the stem to make it more rigid, but they wear the teeth down. Um, so a rabbit that's chewing on grass is going to wear its teeth, even though the loosened hay might feel stiff and abrasive, uh, once it gets in the rabbit's mouth, it does not affect nearly as much wear. So I'm always careful to tell people to avoid encouraging their rabbits to eat loosened hay. Yes, and the only ones I would, uh, the only exceptions for that may be a, a, a patient we need to feed up or a debilitated um, breeding female um, or, or perhaps some of the young rabbits that, um, uh, um, during that first few months of life that, um, that, that um, I don't think it does too much damage to them. So, yeah, so grass, Mark, you're, you're spot on now. I recommend exactly the same. So eat, eat grass and or hay. And then the veggie part. So what do you recommend as far as the veggies when we say this hay and veggie diets for your rabbits? Well, we generally are looking at uh, um, a variety a whole variety of leafy green veggies. And, um, and we like, you know, whether it's herbage from the garden, the milk thistle or um, uh, um, some nasturtiums or um, any of those sorts of, like you said, pretty much anything above the ground, uh, the rabbits will have a little gnaw on. Um, but um, as far as the, uh, um, the actual um, leafy green veggies, we're always keen to get them to 
Um, have I know I always talk to people about a cut uh, per kilo. So um, if we have a, a you know a two kilo maybe average rabbit, a couple of cups of um, uh, leafy green veggies, parsley, spinach, um, uh, um, green sprouts. I like to uh, I like them to have um, uh, those uh, bean and uh, alfalfa sprouts um, as part of their diet in the early stages. Um, so yeah, a wide variety of leafy green vegetables. Yes, and um, people tend to panic about some of these vegetables, what they should or shouldn't feed. And and the the first one that people or clients often quiz me about is lettuce, Mark, um, and which lettuce or lettuces you can or can't feed. And and I I keep it simple and I just say feed the the dark lettuce mixes, those continental sort of um, dark mixes. Um, try to steer clear of the, the lettuces that basically have no nutrition at all and are just water, and that includes the iceberg lettuce here in um in Australia, I forget what it's called overseas. Is it called? Is that Romaine lettuce overseas? I can't remember, Mark, but it has a different name overseas. Um, and and a, and a, a good couple of handfuls this year. Um, lots of variety of leafy greens, including things like the kale as well, bok choy, and all those sort of fibrousy, woody type um, vegetable matter there. And um, the next question clients will say is, "What about fruits? Um, what fruits should I offer my um, rabbit?" And I usually say. None, ideally, um, or a very, very tiny amount, but but basically none, no fruit. Um, what what's your recommendations regarding exactly fruit? Exactly the same, Brendan. I think um, the evidence that uh, relatively simple sugars in the diet um, always result in uh, potential problems in the gastrointestinal tract, whether it's a overgrowth of you know the the bad bacteria, the clostridiums, the the uh, bacteria that are going to elaborate gas, the whatever um, bacteria love those uh, simple sugars are generally bad for the normal function of a, uh, um, a rabbit's gut. So yeah, we're really uh, asking people to um, hardly use any at all. Yes. So you haven't mentioned the other food that's commonly offered to rabbits, and that's the muesli mixes. Oh. You know why I haven't mentioned them, because they make me mad. They make me exceptional. (laughs) If I could, you know, one of the things I do in the consult room, each time I uh, get a new rabbit client in, they're they're, uh, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, they've just witnessed the window open on the uh, new life that's going to come into the new personality that's going to come into their life and they come to me and they're so proud they're showing me the bowls in the carry cage and and uh they've got that wonderful muesli mix it looks healthy brendan it looks like something that a very expensive health food company would market in a very expensive restaurant it's got the seeds it's got the the uh, greens it's um got a variety of like seeds and uh and maybe a little bit of wheat mix and and probably a little bit of splash of molasses over the top but brendan they are bad they are so so bad and the rabbits will love them because they are sweet and they taste nice but oh my goodness they are just going to cultivate the worst crop of gut biota that's possible and eventually things are going to go bad in that rabbit without a doubt um so I, I, I don't know whether I can make this any clearer, Brendan. Do not use that food. Yes, and I, I, I drum it home to the clients by saying there's there's two aspects of it. One, it has all the wrong things in the food, um, and two, being a mix, even if it was complete, which none of them are, they'll just pick out their favorite things anyway so they they go for the worst of the worst and and there are and they obviously they're full of things like seeds and nuts and cereals and grains which is all the things we don't want a, a rabbit to eat we want them to eat just straight fiber don't we and, and fibrous products there and it's also that abrasive ac- action that you mentioned before on the teeth and what happens with these muesli mixes they'll they'll 
pick up the food with their incisors, pass it to those back teeth, chomp it once or twice, and then swallow it. So there's no abrasive action with these particular foods on on those back teeth, which reminds me. I mean, the, 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 we talk about the the quality of um, um, the Oxbow diets, Mark, and I occasionally get a client who comes in who is offering or feeding their rabbit a huge amount of um, the oxbow pellets and I tell the client straight away that's a bad diet not that the oxbow diet is bad it's just the percentage that they're feeding them is bad because even though the oxbow pellets are, are probably the best quality pellet out there they're, and they're, they're they're based on a timothy hay um, which is a grass hay um what will happen is if they're feeding a large percentage of that oxbow pellet, um, the exact same thing will happen. They'll chomp those pellets, they'll pass it to the back teeth, they'll chomp it once or twice and swallow it. So they'll get no abrasive action and wearing down of those continuously growing teeth. They're also quite calorie dense, aren't they, Mark? The, the, the pellets compared with just eating straight fiber from the hay or the grass. So we end up with what we usually see with 100% of those rabbits that are on the muesli mix is we, we end up with a fat rabbit. Um, do you have a similar it's experience? precisely Mark? the same. And you know that I cannot sing the praises of the range of foods from Oxbow. Nearly highly enough they are. Um, they are outstanding and we love uh, tailoring our small herbivores diets by uh, having a look at what Oxbow provide and making sure we match them up. But like you, I worry that the, um, the pelleted Timothy Hay food, which we use routinely in hospital, um, as a standard part of the routine diet, it's stealing the role of those molars. It certainly provides a nice um, fibre-rich uh, mash, mulch to the stomach and the, um, and the um, cecum and as a consequence encourages normal function there. But it steals the role of the molars away and it predisposes them to overgrowth and then all the complications that arise from that. So... We use them in specific circumstances with specific rabbits, but uh, the pellets of any sort, um, we, we tend to um, only uh, use for treatments and not as part of the routine diet. Yes. So I, I don't think it's rocket science as far as trying to get across to clients what the ideal diet for rabbits and that's a, a variety of lettuce. Oh, Mark, that's one of my type of jokes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to mention as a sideline, because one of the questions I quite, yes. quite frequently get asked is the um, uh, are those brassicaceous plants, the, uh, um, you know, the cabbage, Brussels sprouts, broccolini, um, those sorts of plants, because they, um, they have a couple of characteristics which, of course, are a worry to rabbit owners. They are recorded as producing um, a little bit more gas than maybe some of the other uh, plants that are ingested. And they are uh, a source of oxalates, which um, may begin to play around with um, calcium metabolism in the rabbits. But um, my experience, Brendan, is that um, as long as they're fed as part of a broad diet, um, uh, then, then I don't see problems with those plants. What's your experience? I think rabbits are very tolerant to oxalates and, and my general view with rabbits and the variety of vegetable matter out there is that, that they can eat lots and lots of different things that are potentially toxic to other species. And the confusing thing, Mark, is that you look if you look up toxic plants for rabbits, you will find a list of a long list potentially with some of these um, lists of, of, of toxic plants to rabbits and then you'll do a look, look at the next um, link to potential toxic plants to rabbits and you'll get a completely different list, Mark. And um, my view is that rabbits are pretty good at eating lots of a big variety of um, plant material and they cope very well. And, for example, in one of these lists, um, eucalyptus is listed as uh, toxic to rabbits and yet I think if eucalyptus was toxic to rabbit, we wouldn't have much of a problem with 
pest rabbits in Australia here where where that's all they have to eat in some areas um, of Australia where and they're coping quite well and breeding as rabbits so so yeah I, I, I think it's overstated some of these um, plants that are potentially toxic to rabbits and you know um, it reminds me of, of, of a chat I had during the break that I mentioned before um, during our little chit chat at the start of, of one of my seminars on small mammals um, we were talking about diets for rabbits and um, the only toxicity mark that I've ever actually seen or confirmed with 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 rabbits that I've personally seen was an avocado toxicity mark and it was two young rabbits that were literally, and they were probably eight weeks, 12 weeks of age, Mark, and they were literally found at the base of an avocado tree in the backyard with a half-eaten avocado, and they were found comatose. Um, I treated them with supportive care, and one died and one survived. And I related this story at the Lee Gather um seminar last week and at the break uh, um, one of the vets came up to me and said it's funny you should mention that but I killed half my own rabbits by feeding them avocado and um, this this woman unfortunately said um, exactly that and that she fed them some avocado peel and some a bit of avocado and yeah she literally killed half her half her rabbits um, from avocado but that's the only toxicity of of literally i ever personally seen mark have you seen seen the only toxicity um that i've ever seen uh with rabbits has been um rabbits that get stuck into a, a copper arsenate treated you know the copper's logs um and uh but um I think they're more likely to head towards those sorts of, uh, um, you know, chew on some wood if they if they don't have enough fibre in their diet. So, so I do think, like you, that uh, they cope very well with a wide range of, um, of plants, and uh, and I, and particularly where we started this discussion with those um, brassicaceous plants, the cabbage and broccolini and whatnot. I think they go really well with them. Yes. Yes, so I think the good news is, as far as clients um, go, you can m- speak pretty broadly and, and and just really concentrate on on the literally the hay and veggie diet, or as Mark would say, the grass and veggie diet, and um, you can't really go wrong with that. And we we can avoid. And for those listeners who are new subscribers, we have had two. Two sessions of our podcast where we've spoken about diet and disease and dental disease in rabbits, and you may wish to look at those particular podcasts because we do talk about the link between diet and disease um, and dental disease in rabbits and and the feeding of some of these um, incorrect diets um, that result in the acquired dental disease in rabbits. So have a look at those podcasts. You can do a search for that at vetgurus.com. So any other sort of closing thoughts you have about uh, the hay and veggie diet? The only other Mark? little point I was going to make, Brendan, is that um, that many of our house rabbits can be on an excellent diet and um, they may not get enough vitamin D. And I think that, um, uh, you know, the, a little bit of sunlight a little bit of sun baking, maybe in in their rabbit max, um, their outdoor run for rabbits. Uh, um, they don't need a huge amount of time, but um, uh, some some sunlight to stimulate vitamin D processing. Um, we even have a couple of clients who have um, you know the reptile lights set up in the lounge room so that uh, the full spectrum lights uh, the rabbits can sit under. Um, and get their um, vitamin D that way. So I think um, they don't need to worry about it. It is in, taken in in the diet, but they do need some sunshine. Absolutely, and I, I agree totally that that. And I often quote to clients one of the studies that was done many years ago, where they took three groups of rabbits, outside rabbits that were wandering around in the backyard, like a a dog or maybe a cat, except for that New Zealand um, little area that we spoke about earlier. Um, and they compared the vitamin D levels of outside rabbits. This was in, in the UK, in England, 
to inside rabbits, so house rabbits that never were never exposed to natural light, and wild rabbits, Mark, and they compared the vitamin D levels of all three, and the outside rabbits had very close or, or identical vitamin D levels to the wild rabbits um, and the pet rabbits outside, um, whereas the indoor rabbits, Mark, some of them, they virtually could not even detect vitamin D in them, so... A really dramatic study that was done that I always like to quote, and uh, I strongly encourage all clients, yeah, to to sit outside with their rabbit um, every now and again, even in in the darkest winter. You still get UV um, on on dark winter, cloudy days. You still get UV exposure, and that even includes we have an increase in number of clients who have house rabbits and they live in inner urban areas or inner city apartments and we encourage them to take their rabbit out on the balcony perhaps with a little harness on just in case um, and expose them to some natural light mark so I, I, I agree totally with what you say there so there you go the hay and veggie diet gee we ended up spending a fair period of time with that mark um, um, for something supposedly so simple but I think there's a few important points there and um the outro man is about to jump in so we thank you all for listening and um, make sure you visit vetgurus.com and we'll talk to you all next week see you then thanks for listening to the vet podcast by the vet gurus don't forget to visit us at the website vetgurus.com where you can subscribe view show notes listen to previous episodes and more you can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.